right into this uh, series, this new series, Confidere, which has to do with the Latin word that we translate as confidence, moving forward with faith. We're going to talk about that. I've got a little two-piece uh, uh, message to share this week and next week. It's kind of connected, and then we're moving into the summer and hearing from a lot of different guests sharing as well. So I'm looking forward to that. I've been thinking a lot about this whole series and been sitting with it, trying to wrestle with it, you know, because I know God wants a lot of us to to have points of breakthrough in, in our lives. And also just the way the nature of life is that inevitably if we live long enough, we're going to have issues that we have to confront. We've been talking about not being afraid, fearing less. Now we're talking about stepping forward in faith. That is learning how to trust God and how to act courageously. And so a lot of what we're going to be looking at has to do with stirring up courage inside of our own hearts to do the things that we know God is asking us to move into. Some of those things can be very intimidating and scary to face up to. I was thinking about this, and uh, I was reading and covering a couple of different things, and I saw a quotation from a woman who, I mean, a lot of us would recognize her name, Eleanor Roosevelt, the famous first lady, the wife of FDR. She was noted for a number of things, but one of the things she said about fear actually caught me, and uh, I asked them if they could actually put it up on the board. And it's not in your handout, but it is up there. And it says this, that you can, she said, you can gain strength, courage, and confidence. Again, I was thinking about our theme. By every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. And then this phrase that just really hit me. She said, you must do the thing that you think you cannot do. You must do the thing that you think you cannot do. I just felt like, wow, that, that's intense. There are a lot of times where it's, it, we just don't feel strong enough. And as, as a follower of Jesus... For me, I connected that to Philippians 4.13, in which we are reminded by the great apostle, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Sometimes it's in the areas where I feel most intimidated or part of me wants to run away from the responsibility to, to face it, that it's in these moments where God's really trying to grow us. Oftentimes, it's in the crucible of our fears that our faith is forged in fresh new ways. And I've noted that in my own life with God, that those places that I so much don't want to be having to walk through are the very places where the Lord gets my attention and oftentimes wrestles with me to, to come around to a way of seeing things that I didn't see before. It has to do with trust. So we're going to explore that together. We're going to look at the first miracle of Jesus. Sit with it, think about it, interact with it, learn from it, and apply it. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask God to bless the time that we have left. And I say this to you, Lord Jesus, that you're the God who does amazing things. Again, even as we think about this service and the theme that we've sort of set in place for it, from beginning all the way actually to the end of the, to the final song that we share, there's this underlying theme of your ability to come into our situations and to be a difference maker, that we can trust you. That when we sing about your power and your capacity to heal, your ability to, to break through into areas that are otherwise blockaded, that what we're thinking about, Lord, and declaring is our confidence and our belief in your ability to, to help and to move and to do amazing things. So it's not just about triumphalistically declaring your power. It's about declaring how trustworthy you are. And so as we, as we examine uh, an exchange that occurred in which someone who loved you very much um, wanted you to do something, trusted you, and watch how you interacted with that, I pray that we would learn from it. So speak to us. Help us to just listen with, with open hearts and listening ears. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. So I'm calling this Embracing the Joy of Life. It's really the first miracle that I want to look at. 
First miracle of Jesus. So if we can, John 2, verses 1 and 2, we'll start there. It says on the third day. A lot of things happen in the Bible on the third day. It's just one of those phrases, right? One of those things. On the third day, there was a wedding in the Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, we're told. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus has just begun his ministry. He's making a shift. He's got a group of, of, of followers. We call them disciples. They've committed themselves to him. He's getting ready to go public with, with his call, with his declaration, with his conviction that he has come to give his life away so that many would live the Messiah. But this occurs right before that, and we're told that it happens at a, a town, really, a town in the Galilee. Now, I'll put a map up because it's helpful for us to get a context just geographically. I know we do this every now and then, but I find it's helpful. So much of this region is in the news today anyway, all the time. Um, you know, Jerusalem, Israel, it's always there. To the south, you have Egypt. A lot of things have been happening there. To the east, think about, you know, not only Jordan, but just Iraq, Iran. And then if you go up north, you know, you're moving upward. If you keep going upward, you hit right into Syria. It's in the middle of the news right now. The Galilee is north of Jerusalem. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. One of the primary areas um, is that region around the Sea of Galilee. And you'll notice where Cana is. We kind of enlarged it, but it gives you a sense of context as to the exact location. One of the things we know about Cana was that, besides its proximity to Nazareth, is that it appears that there were friends and family members who were connected some in Cana and some in Nazareth, that Mary was a friend of the, the family whose son was getting married. And uh, one of the things that stands out here is the significance of a wedding ceremony that I, I think is worth noting. I'm just going to put a couple of things just to get us to thinking about it a little bit differently um, out there because a lot of times when we, you know, we have weddings today, they're very festive, they're very special times, no question about it. A whole, sometimes a whole day is devoted to a, a wedding. We'll go to it, we... We enjoy the moment. We share the joy of what has so much promise in it, the possibility of future, and uh, is a lot of love and affirmation. And then oftentimes there's a celebration that can last into the evening. But in Jesus' day, weddings took on even more significance. I think not, not at least a little bit in part of the fact that the life was a little bit more mundane. It, it, for the most part, people uh, worked really hard and didn't have a lot of things that we would consider to be um, easy. And so there would come these certain moments where they would have an opportunity to celebrate, and weddings were one of those moments. In fact, we know that in Jesus' day, some weddings were typically seven days in duration. So you had the ceremony itself, and then the, the, the host, the, the groom and his family were expected to create an environment where people could come and go throughout the week and celebrate what was happening. It was a real festive occasion, and again, I think that we have a hard time appreciating the significance of, of weddings, maybe even for, for generations past, partly because of the sheer abundance of the entertainment choices that we just have and take for granted. I mean, honestly, the, it's, it's amazing how many options we really do have. Everything's on demand. You can get what you want when you want it. And the real issue is not can you get entertainment options, but how are you going to delineate the scope of those options? How do you bring them down? and decide which ones garner, should garner your attention. That is a challenge I can assure you previous generations did not possess. And so when they had an opportunity to go to a wedding, it was like a big, big deal. Some of the bigness of that deal has been distilled away because, again, we live in a different kind of world in which celebration is taken for granted at a variety of levels. But for them, this was an extraordinarily special moment. Now, when people would come, it was kind of a transactional thing, somewhat what we do now, but even more so. People would agree to come. They agree to acknowledge 
the, the, the wedding with their presence. They would oftentimes bring gifts, and uh, they would bring their own willingness to just embrace it and enjoy it. But the host also had an expectation placed upon them. They were to provide an atmosphere of festivity, of hospitality. Uh, there was to be food and drink available for those who came and, and, and went. And, and the food and, and drink, and the drink of choice in the Palestinian world of Jesus' day clearly was wine. There's no doubt about it. And that really does serve as a backdrop for this miracle. Can't, can't really talk about it without at least addressing it in some way. Uh, all my life, I've sort of grown up with a familiarity with the first miracle of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I will tell you this. This is maybe falls under the category of, you know, might mean something more to some and, and nothing to, to someone else. But I just, at a personal level, I can tell you that I've thought a lot about this in my own life. You know, I, it was very early in my Christian life. I mean, at the, in my teenage years, I felt a very personal conviction about making a decision that I have carried, carried with me now for three decades. Uh, and it was that as a, as, a young, as a young teenager, I felt that part of what was for me to be my personal commitment to Jesus was a commitment to basically be a non-drinker. And I've, I've sustained that my entire life. Now, now, part of that has become a real blessing at different times. I mean, I, mean, I think a lot of you know that our church also works with a lot of people who are in recovery. Um, there's a lot of people who are working through addictions. It's been a real blessing to be able to be able to do that. For example, we changed the communion service from we used to have, when I was just starting, we used to have real wine that we would use. But we begin to realize that we needed to be sensitive that a lot of people were struggling and trying to get breakthroughs in certain areas. We didn't want to stumble anyone, certainly not around the Lord's table, so we changed it to juice. Uh, I say that because um, at a personal level, I have a conviction that I've sort of sustained but really, I'm surrounded by people who, who love wine. The Bible talks about drinking in moderation. It definitely says that drunkenness is not something that is to be a characteristic of someone who would follow the Lord with integrity, that a lot of foolish things are done. A lot of, a lot of bad photographs are taken. Uh, and I'm just telling you, all right? And so, but, you know, I grew up, my mom is a... Is a <laughs> it's a, she's a restaurateur, especially in her older years. She started restaurants, and uh, she actually uh, started the, it wasn't, it was a, a little Lovejoy's Tea House that she, she actually started and eventually sold here in the city and, and has a couple of restaurants up north in her older years. She's actually flowered as someone who just is really good at what she does, and I've been amazed and impressed and challenged and motivated by her kind of, uh, ability to be an entrepreneur at this stage in her life fascinates me. I say that because she, and I don't think she would get mad at me, but, you know, she, she, is, she loves wine, you know, and she's, she's a bit of a modest connoisseur, if, if that's not a contradiction in terms. And I, uh, I, you know, so I'm around it. That's my whole point. And I think that, that uh, it is, though, important. It comes up in conversations, too. Well, you know, was drinking different in Jesus' day? I, I did find something from Keener that uh, who's, who's a writer that I respect, who put something on, on the board that I think is helpful. In fact, I put it in, in your handout. This is just for additional discussion and thought because it comes up periodically, and I'm going to be talking about the miracle, so I figured it'd be helpful to put this in there. It's in the handout in the blue indented section there in that column. It says that wine was not merely unfermented grape juice, as some popular modern North American apologists for abstinence have contended. And again, I, I speak, speak as one who is, is abstinent in that regard. Um, before hermetic sealing and refrigeration 
it was difficult to prevent some fermentation and impossible to do so over a long period of time. Nor was wine drunk only to purify the water, as some have claimed. In fact, much spring water in the Mediterranean is palatable, and many Greek and Romans viewed it as medicinally helpful. Now, at the same time, this is important, the content, the, the alcoholic content of wine was not artificially increased through distillation. And people in the ancient Mediterranean world always mixed water with the wine served with meals, often, look at this, two to four parts water per every, every part wine. Undiluted wine was actually considered dangerous, and drunkenness was viewed unfavorably. That's the truth. You know, Jesus, there was no record ever of Jesus being drunk, but there, at, at all. They couldn't condemn him for that. They could condemn him for being around people who seemed to enjoy life in ways that, that his enemies or his contractors deemed inappropriate. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus was an amazing example of how to approach life. He walks this fine line. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but I want to get to something else. I want to be able to sort of address it from a different direction. And uh, I want to like to look at verse number three again. It says here that when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They're, they're, they've, they're in trouble. Uh, by the way, in their day, I think we, we should understand that for a host to run out of, of wine would have been a problem. It would have been shameful, certainly embarrassing to be inviting people over and then not to be able to provide for them. And this was the situation. Evidently, Mary was a friend of the bridegroom, I mean, of the, of the groom and uh, his family, and so a close friend, it would seem. And she feels compelled to bring this situation to Jesus. And it's clear from her statement that it was designed to be more than just you know, relaying information, and, 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 you know, and clearly, as we're going to see, it was interpreted by Jesus um, as more of a, like, uh, a rhetorical question that was almost requiring a response. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just, you know, did you know that they were out of, out of they've run out of wine? That wasn't it. It was, they've run out of wine, and you need to do something about it, right? That was the idea, what are you going to do about it? You need to help them. You need to do something. They're, they're in trouble. You need to do something. And that, the reason we know it was sent out like that, because look at the response of Jesus. Look what he says. He says this, and, and, he, and he doesn't say this disrespectfully, but he clearly is not saying mother. He says instead to her, woman, what does, that's a, it was a respectful term in his day, but it was clearly saying, this is not about a mother and son thing here. This is about a different change that has occurred in our relationship. It's a shift. You, you, you know, he's begun his ministry. He's, he has identified disciples. And he was already saying to Mary, things are not going to be the same. And, and, and he says, look, and, and that's one. And then the second thing he's saying here is, I'm not a performer. All right? My power is for a purpose and a time. Look what he says. Woman, what does, what does your concern have to do with me, honestly? My hour has not yet come. By the way, that phrase, my hour has not yet come, will become a phrase that Jesus will use again and again. It will be a statement he will make at a variety of times. When you read the life, about the life of Christ, when you study the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, you'll note that this phrase comes up, this statement comes up, my hour. He talks about his hour all the time, my hour. In this case, he's saying, my hour of revealing as to my messianic purpose is not yet come. It's about to come, but not yet, and not in this way. My hour has not yet come. Sometimes... And in John's gospel, for example, it's, it's stated in, what, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. Every one of those chapters talks about it. But here's an interesting thing. Sometimes he refers, it's referring to his sort of messianic moment. Other times, the majority of the time, it's referring to the cross and his time of suffering, his, his passion, his giving himself away. That is the hour. 
Sometimes it also refers to his hour of resurrection and glorification. So he uses the term in different ways. In this case, he's clearly saying to her, look, the hour of my revealing is not now and not in this way. And you would think that, you look at verse, you would think that, that Jesus' response to Mary, some have even called it a gentle rebuff, right? Would have been enough to deter her, but she clearly is a woman with a lot of chutzpah, all right? It says, his mother said to the servants, uh-huh, whatever he says to you, do it, which is great. I love that. Jesus says, you know, my hour has not yet come, so, I, you know, what, this, is not my, this is not my concern. She says, uh-huh, you know, whatever he tells you to do, that's what you need to do. Bye, right? I mean, that's the impression. And it's really interesting to watch the interaction take place. It's like, he's going to do something. Whatever he, whenever he tells you, you just do it. It was a really interesting com com commitment on her part. And, and I think that that's fascinating to me. And I, and I love this. And I'm going to read through the verses 6 and through 10. And then I'll discuss them more in depth, Lord willing, next week. I just want to kind of move through them very rapidly here. It says, Now there were set then six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the, then the inferior comes. What are you, hey, what are you guys doing? You're squishing things up on us. Usually the custom is to bring out the good wine at the beginning, and then later on, when it doesn't matter as much, the, the lesser quality stuff. But you guys, you brought out the, the lesser quality, and you saved the good for last. What's going on here? Now, that's the story. I have some things to share around this, and I want to get to it. And again, I want to pick up on it next week because I'm looking forward to that. But I do have some things I would like us to think about in the minutes that we have left and interact with it. And so let me just note this as, as observations connected to and applications connected to this first miracle and what it means for us as we seek to move forward in a life of faith. Because our great example, I think we understand this, is Jesus. One of the things that's fascinating here is to consider the fact that this miracle happens at a wedding feast. So the number one, it happens at a wedding feast, at a celebration, which tells us something about Jesus. One of the things it tells us is that he was at home with celebration. He was uncomfortable. In contrast to, to John the Baptist, to the, his forerunner, the, who was known as being a very um, radical uh, person who stepped out of society and culture. It says he, Jesus said he, he, he came not eating and drinking. John came extremely distant. He did not commit himself to the people. He set himself apart as a righteous, holy man from the outside, sharing his words with power and authority, and they were controversial, and he was extremely self-disciplined and restrained. Um, Jesus, in contrast to that, had a different way of approaching. He says, you know, um, he came in a, in a way that was designed to connect with people and to meet them where they were. We know that this oftentimes was a contrast as well to the Pharisees who, who were far more austere. Jesus, listen, would never be described as an austere, severe man. His accusers never could call him joyless. In fact, it seems that when people 
met Jesus, they said, there he goes, a happy man. There was something about him that compelled people. He is this amazing model. Um, I think that he shows us how to walk this, this kind of tightrope because he, he exercised a tremendous amount of self-discipline. Uh, he had himself uh, you know, a moral restraint that is required of all of us. You know, the Christian life is not a, I think we understand this, it's not a boundaryless, moral free-for-all where anything goes. That's pretty clear. The Bible has things that he asks us to do. Sometimes what, he's asked, what the Lord's word asks us to do will actually challenge us to think about what it means to live counterculturally. It may even mean at times walking to the beat of a different drum. It may mean that we may not always be able to swim with the current in the direction and just kind of move with the mass of culture. It may mean at times that we have to actually be willing to go against the grain. That is true. To follow Christ at times will involve a cross, and sometimes that cross, he said it would involve a cross, and that cross may at times stretch us because it may not be always in his way, may not always be in harmony with the way of culture. What do we do? How do we negotiate that? Jesus models that. So, uh, and one of the things that I love about Jesus is he modeled a personal level of tremendous integrity that none of his accusers could really assail him for anything he did beyond the fact that he chose in their mind poor company at times. But at the same time, he's not joyless. You study him, he's not somber. He's not, uh, how do you say, repressive. Jesus does not model a kind of closed way of living life. There is a joy about him. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it overflowing. And so again, this, this tension of grace and truth, this, this, uh, this challenge of being able to live with a high degree of, of, of restraint and bless that we may be able to bless and not be bound up in things, that we might have liberty but not abuse that liberty, that we might live in his grace but then not use that grace as a means of somehow justifying things that Jesus would never do himself, that this tension is very important for us to sit with. And I, I think about this a lot, um, and I, I was even thinking about the miracle itself, and I was reminded of this. And just consider this as well. We'll call this the second piece here, that this miracle was actually a result of a request, of a request that could have been considered, number two, frivolous, right? You think about it for a moment. The, the running out of wine on the part of the host in the, at a wedding ceremony in Jesus' day might have been considered shameful, maybe a little bit embarrassing, certainly I think embarrassing. But in the greater theme, you know, sort of, in the greater scheme of things, can you really say it was a big deal? Was it really important? Was it necessary? Did anybody get healed with this miracle? No. Think about it. The first miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And, you know, I, honestly, if we're honest about it, it doesn't seem that spiritual. And I think that's worth looking at for a moment. I mean, when, when one considers the vast needs of the poor and the disenfranchised and the oppressed in his day, who could have benefited from his power display? We could very much ask the question. The idea would be, how could you use this power for such a comparatively speaking trivial thing when there are so many far more serious needs out there that you're not addressing? Come on. 
And I think it could, we could say, well, that's hard to understand. Why would he do that? And I, I'm going to tell you something. I think part of it is that we cannot put Jesus into a box, tight and, and clearly framed. He tends to become uncontainable. There, there is a kind of part of his way that forces us to wrestle with nuance. He, there are some things that are absolutely clear. Of course, we have no question about it. But there are th- some things that we are forced to wrestle with in our own conscience before God. There are areas, for example, that may not be helpful for me that are okay for you. There are certain things that the Lord will challenge in our lives that gonna hold, they're going to hold us back if we just yield to them. In fact, we're going to get bound up in them. And you know what I know about Jesus? He likes to set people free. He kind of unravels the things that bind us. That's what he does. But a lot of times we can get ourselves bound up because of choices we're making, and the Lord is asking us to let some things go. And it, it, again, I say that because, but then I look at this and I go, wow, you know, Jesus, you yourself, um, you didn't, you, you, you didn't, no, it's hard to put you in a box. I mean, on the one hand, stay with me on this, he loves the poor. They call him blessed. It says the poor received him gladly. He treated every person, every human being, it made him a little bit different. He treated everyone with so much dignity, even the poor and the outcast and the immoral. They felt safe with him. There was such a purity of his heart that he could, he could do certain things that a lot of us can't do because there was no contradiction inside of him. He was tempted at all points, yet without sin. And there was, no, there, there was a sense that people were totally safe with him. That, that, and, and, and yet, he, he, so he would, when he talked to the poor and the, and the broken and, and, the, and, the, and the oppressed and, and the outside, they loved him. And it says that... that and Jesus would tell them, you are invited into this great feast. This feast that I've come to initiate through the giving of my own life, my sacrificial death, is for everyone. And yet at the same time, listen, it would be unfair and disingenuous and certainly theologically off to suggest that Jesus' primary purpose for coming was to be a social worker, because it wasn't. He, 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 they tried to get him to lead a social movement. He wouldn't do it. Try to, you got you to help us organize to get rid of Rome. They're oppressing people. Wouldn't do it. There was other situations where Jesus would come into contact with people who were very wealthy. And he would say to them, listen, um, you need to live with generosity and also be very careful because you're actually, your blessing is potentially a significant danger to you because your fear of losing what you temporarily possess can actually blind you to your need. And if you're not careful, you begin to worship it more than you worship God, and you don't see your true need because you can mask it with things. You have no need, and therefore you don't see your need. He says, remember this, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that they possess. In other words, we can never be defined on the basis of what we accumulate, achieve, or temporarily possess, the amount of money in our bank account. That does not define who we are, not in God's eyes. And he said it is important to be, if we've been given much, we have responsibility. And yet, there is no record of Jesus walking around telling people, um, you know, you need to redistribute your wealth. wealth. Whatever they did was out of their own heart. He would encourage it. There was one time and one time alone where Jesus said to a man, you need to go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor as a condition for following me. Once, nothing else. That was a man who had a tremendous amount of pedigree and thought he was very good. He was rich, he was young, and he was a leader. They call him the rich young ruler. He told Jesus how good he was. He basically said, Jesus... 
you are honored to have me apply for a position of being your disciple. <laughs> and Jesus said, hmm, okay, well, um, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. He says he walked away sorrowfully because he was rich. Couldn't do it. The one thing Jesus found, <laughs> bam, right there. <laughs> Right there. He knows where it is. We can, he, he sees it all. In you and in me. Loves us still. I, I say that because Jesus was not an activist or a politician. He loved people across the board. Up and outers, down and outers, in the middle. Didn't, didn't matter. All are welcome in the kingdom. Every race, every color, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. Whoever will come and drink of this water. You must choose to embrace me. But the gift is open to everyone if you will come. This is important. Um, I, well, we'll say this. Jesus came to save us. He came to show us how to live, how to, how to face life in a broken world. But Jesus, here's what I'm trying to, partly what I'm getting at, at least. He embraced life fully even as he was giving away his life. He, he, he embraces life. And, and, and for him, and just think about it, the suffering of others around him did not mean that it was wrong for him to enjoy the good gifts of life. Now, that's interesting. Because you, you could argue that how can I enjoy things if others are not? And Jesus, Jesus came to address the human condition. At the same time, he shows us that he was not adverse from participating in the goodness of life um, even though everything was not well. He is coming to make things different but he was not using the condition of everything has to be fair and equal. And I don't mean, boy, I am walking in such interesting places right now. But my point is that he really does model how to live a vibrant life without feeling, on the one hand, uh, compelled to be austere because there are problems that are so huge, and at the same time not closing his eyes, instead modeling for us a life of compassion, kindness, gentleness, grace, this amazing tension that he models for us of how to live life fully and yet with restraint and to live with an eye, eye for others, uh, a very giving, life-sharing uh, life kind of way of approaching people, uh, it's just beautiful. It's amazing. It's a perfect model. And I'll say, oh, and by the way, the last thing we'll say around this in the minutes, we just got a couple minutes. Let me put this up and say this, that one of the things I've noticed is that this miracle was an answer to a, a request from someone he loved that was given on behalf of another, which that's important for us. Why? Think about it. What does Mary say? Mary says, I need you to do this for them. Would you do that? And, it, and, and you think, well, but is it really that big of a deal? But you know what? It, Jesus did. He's gonna, he does it. He does it. And it reminds us that we can bring things to the Lord on behalf of others who are our friends. And it doesn't even have to be an earth-shaking thing, but it's something that matters. And we can ask the Lord, we can use, to use a word, to intercede for them, to mediate on their behalf, to, to take the, a relationship we have with the Lord and to ask the Lord to help in this situation and, and you know what? We're invited to do so. It's a model of it. If we, when we love people, we will do this because we care. We want to we see them touched. And what happens is an amazing thing because Jesus does something that would have never happened if Mary hadn't asked for it 
uh, and, and almost in an audacious way. And, and so said, he will do this because his heart is willing to do it. It's great. It's fantastic. He wants to do it for us, around us, and in us. I, I, I just think this is the way of the Lord. And, um, you know, as we think about what it means to represent his heart, I pray that we would be a people who would be open to being that kind of light for him, that we would think about how we're living, that we would seek to live a vibrant life of faith. That's what I'm contending for, a joyful, vibrant life that is not ignorant to the pain around it, but is at the same time enjoying life and living life with some degree of compassion and generosity, taking ownership for our own heart, our own way of living in accordance with his ways, which are the way of blessing. I was telling someone I love the Lord's ways very recently. The Lord's way is the way of blessing. If we walk in it, we will be blessed. You will, it will show up in ways that, that are amazing. It's the good way. It's the way of life. Let's pray and we'll, we'll close with our time of giving in a song. Lord, I want to ask you to be real to us. I want to ask you to meet us where we are. I know you love us. I know that. Um, we've been given a life to live. I want to live it for you. I want to love well. I want to be a blessing. Help us, Lord, to not get reckless with things. Things can bind us up. Help us not to ignore your words. Your words are truth in life. They're not designed to constrict us. They're designed to bless us. That's the truth. Your commands are not grievous. They're helpful. They bring goodness and blessing in life wherever they go. I pray that we would have listening ears and open hearts. I pray that we would have receptivity to the power that you can bring into situations. I pray that you put people in our hearts that we're supposed to pray for and love and and ask you to help them. Not be afraid of that, Lord. So just pray that you be, be with us in these closing minutes as we, as we end this time together in song. May you be honored in it. Bless our giving. Bless our hearts. Bless these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.